So why don't we grab our Bibles, let's pray, let's turn to the Scriptures together and incline our hearts towards the Lord to see what it is that He has to say to us this morning. So, Father, we, we do just thank You for the greatness of who You are. And we thank You for that reality of a God who is with us, a God who is willing and able to lead us and guide us through every twist and turn of the journey. And we want to be a people who continually are looking to You, continually, continually are seeking and desiring Your leading with uh, ears and the eyes of our heart open to see and to hear what it is that You're saying to us. So we pray even this morning, Lord, may we be a people who are ready, ready to hear, ready to listen, ready to receive, and not just receive, not just hearers of the Word, but doers of the Word. Father, come and, and do your work in our hearts and our lives this morning and continue to lead us into your purposes and your plans at this time. We pray in Jesus' wonderful, mighty name, the name that is above every other name, the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, let's quickly turn to the book of Acts. We're going to continue our series working our way through this incredible journey as the purpose and plans of the Lord unfold. At this particular time, it's specifically through the Apostle Paul as he continues his missionary journeys. Adam last week began chapter 18. We see Paul in Corinth, a place called Corinth. From Corinth, Paul then moves to Antioch and he eventually moves on to Ephesus. And I want to pick up two specific accounts, one we find at the end of chapter 18, one that we find at the beginning of chapter 19. Remembering at this point in Luke's narrative, as, as he uh, recounts the journey and the unfolding of the early church, uh, and it's a journey that spends some three decades. So often we're hearing, well, Paul was here for a year or 18 months or two years, and we're kind of picking up speed. But if you think about it, that's a lot of conversations, there's a lot of interaction, there's a lot of events that clearly are not included within Luke's particular account. So when we hit a portion of the journey, as we will this morning, at the end of 18 and the end of 19, where these, these two specific events, seemingly on the surface, they don't seem to be initially particularly significant in terms of numbers reached or the great impact, but we should stop and wonder and ask ourselves, why is it that Luke felt it's so important? Why was it that the Holy Spirit so impressed upon his heart to include these specific events, and what is it that we can learn from them? So let's jump in to chapter 18, verse 24. The first one concerns a man by the name of Apollos. It says, now, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, this is verse 24 of chapter 18, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man. So let's just, just think, just ponder, just recognize the description that we're given of this man. He's, he's eloquent. He is a good speaker. He's, he's, he's got a great presence as he speaks. That's number one. Number two, it says he's competent in the Scripture. He's a man of the Word. We could say he knows his Bible. He knows the Scriptures. And in fact, more than that, verse 25, it says he'd been instructed in the way of the Lord. 
and being fervent in spirit. So there's a zeal, there's a passion to him. He's enthusiastic about what he does. He spoke and he taught accurately the things concerning Jesus. So not only is he a man of Scripture, he's a man who speaks and teaches and proclaims accurately about Jesus. Now, we're not given the full picture of exactly what that is, but it's, it's probably right, I would suggest, to presume that he, he knows who Jesus was. He knows the, the essence of what it is that Jesus came to accomplish. In verse 26, he began to speak boldly in the synagogue. And here's where it becomes interesting, because so far we've seen a pretty incredible form, if you like. We've seen a pretty incredible package, a man who knew the Word, who proclaimed with zeal and passion. He was a great speaker. He taught accurately about Jesus. And yet it says, when he began to speak, Priscilla and Aquila, to uh, a couple, two people that we were introduced to earlier in the chapter, they heard him and they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. Now that should kind of surprise us a little because despite this package, which from all externalities, it looked the real deal. He, He taught with passion, he taught with accuracy, he was bold in what he did, he knew his scriptures, he knew Jesus, and yet there was something missing. There was something missing, and we're going to talk more about that in a moment. It says, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God, and explained it to him more accurately. I would suggest that it's not as much that he was inaccurate, because we're told that he he preached and proclaimed accurately as it was incomplete. And just as a little aside here, how was it that Priscilla and Aquila addressed what they could see was something that he was missing in his life? Well, what it doesn't say is it doesn't say that they took him outside, that they waited and accosted him in the alleyway. It doesn't say that they launched a a tirade on Facebook. It doesn't say that they set up an antiapollosministries.com, the false preacher who proclaims an inadequate message. In fact, the NIV phrases it this way. It says, they invited him to their home and explained to him the way of God more adequately. Now, let's just think about that for the moment because it it, it literally has that connotation of a sense of tenderness and affection and love. They could see there was something that needed to be addressed, but they took him aside with love and care and concern with a genuine interest in seeing him uh, understand what it was that he was missing. I'll leave that one with you in the midst of our contentious world, how it is that we can address issues when they arise in a godly manner. So there's something missing, and they address this, and we can presume from this that he responds well, because it goes on, and it says they send him away, and the disciples welcome him when he arrives. So he, he crosses over, and And it says at the end there of verse 27, when he arrived, he greatly helped those through grace who had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the Scriptures that Christ was was Jesus. So there's this sense of correction and there's this sense of him then being released in far greater impact and with far greater effect and power in his ministry. Let's jump down to verse 19, so bear that in mind, because there's a link here. I know we've got a chapter break, and we're supposed to pause there and not go on past the chapter, but there's a definitive link here. It says in chapter 19, and it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, so Luke is identifying something, he's saying both of these happened at the same time. Here's a man, he, 
He knew so much. He knew the scriptures. He knew Jesus. He taught with passion. But again, in verse 25, it says, but he knew only the baptism of John. That's what it is, is said about him. And in verse 19, again, it says that while Apollos was at Corinth, while all this was happening, Paul passed through the inland, in, inland country and came to Ephesus. So he's in Ephesus. There he found some disciples. And I want you to grab this question because we're going to come back and ponder this and exactly what it means. This is his question to them. It says, he says to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Now, I think Luke is making this connection. Paul's met this group of disciples. They're called disciples and they're called believers. And yet, it's very obvious to Paul that something is missing. Something's not quite right. Where is it that Paul goes? What is the first question that he asks them? You see, he doesn't say, well, something's missing. So hey, just tell me, are you really trying hard enough? Are you working hard enough? Are you following the right formulas? Are you praying the right prayers? Can I just have a look at your liturgy? Can you show me what it is that's happening in terms of the externalities of your life? See, it wasn't there conduct. It wasn't even in their convictions. He acknowledges their convictions and their belief and that they were disciples. And isn't it interesting that by nature, that's normally our go-to point. We look to the externalities. What's wrong? Well, it must be something external, something in conduct, something in conviction. And certainly, there can be issues that need to be addressed there. But in this instance, There's something that's missing. And Paul's first question, he says, did you receive the Holy Spirit? Did you receive it? Now, he's not looking for some theological answer, some theological acknowledgement. He's looking for an evidential reality. He's looking to see whether there is some, for them, acknowledgement, some evidence, some reality of the power of the Holy Spirit in their lives. Let's move on and just read the rest of the story he said, did you receive it? I said, well, no, we've not even heard. This is verse 2, that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, into what then were you baptized? They said, into John's baptism. Here's another link with what was happening with Apollos. Remember, it said that he knew Jesus, that he taught the Scripture, but he was only aware of John's baptism. We're not told exactly what that means, but it's elaborated here. They said, well, We were only baptized into John's baptism. Paul said, well, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling people to believe in the one that was to come after him. That is Jesus. Remember, John served an important function. It was to call the people to repentance and to point towards the one. He said, there's one coming. He's mightier than me. I'm baptizing in water, but he will baptize in what? In the Holy Spirit and fire. Verse 5, on hearing this, it says they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands upon them, the Holy Spirit came on them and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. And there were about 12 men in all. So it's not a huge crowd. And yet there's some sort of significance in this count and the account that we've just read from Apollos that causes Luke to pen these in to his narrative account. So let's talk about that for a little while. Let's put these together. What we can see from these two accounts is that there was a gospel being proclaimed throughout the region. 
There was a gospel being preached with zeal. That's what it says about Apollos. He was preaching it. He was proclaiming accurately from the Scriptures all about Jesus and who Jesus was. There was a people who were believing. These people were disciples. They were believers. They were following Christ. And yet in both instances, something was missing. There's a recalibration for Apollos in the the purity of his teaching. There's, There's something, not as I said, that's inaccurate as much as it's incomplete. And certainly for these disciples, Paul makes it very clear what he, what he says is missing. Where's the Holy Spirit in this picture? Where is it? Have you received the Holy Spirit? Well, we've not even heard of him. Who's, who's the Holy Well, let me introduce you. It's not a big deal. Let me, let me show you. Let me introduce you to the Holy Spirit. They're baptized and then filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. See, I love this. It, it kind of illustrates to me. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 2. He's talking to the Corinthian church. It shows the heart. It shows the priority of Paul. It shows something that is important for us to recognize and to realize today. And we'll get there in a moment. It's just as important now as it was 2,000 years ago as it will be until the day when the Lord himself returns. See, 1 Corinthians 2 says this. It's Paul speaking. It says, when I came to you, brothers, he's reminding them. He's looking back on his time there reminding them about what it was that he stood for. What was the greatest priority of Paul as he ministered, as he traveled, as he proclaimed the gospel, as he saw the incredible things that he saw? It says, number one, when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming the testimony of God with a losty speech or wisdom. He's saying, I didn't come with the externalities. I didn't come with some fancy new cutting edge this or a lights display. Or, I didn't come with any of that. I simply came, he says in verse 2, and decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That was always his priority. That's what we've always seen. He came and he preached and proclaimed the gospel. He told people about Jesus. That was his, his first and foremost focus was, do you know Jesus? Have you believed in Jesus? But he continues, that's not the end of the story. And he says in verse 3, And I was with you in weakness and fear and much trembling. My speech and message were not of plausible words of wisdom, but in the demonstration of the Spirit and power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. He's saying, I didn't come with, with wise philosophies intentionally. I came with this, the purity and the truth of the gospel and the reality of the power of the Spirit. Now, I want to encourage our hearts that if we're to be effective now, as we were 2,000 years ago when everything began to unfold, the day of Pentecost, as we've seen time and time again, and as again, as this, this recalibrating moment at Acts 18 and 19, here's the two things we need to grab a hold of, the purity of the message. That's what it's about, Jesus proclaiming him. It's about the purity of the gospel, and it's about the power of the Holy Spirit at work in the lives of his people. Now, very quickly, I I want to do two things this morning, and then we'll bring this together. I want to unpack this theologically, and it won't be too heavy and weighty, I pray, but there's something important for us to grab hold of theologically in this question that Paul asks, and then there is a practical application for us at the end of the day. I want to encourage us 
and stir our hearts in this regard. So theologically, let's just think this through. What, what is it that is important for us to grab a hold of? Remembering Paul's question as he comes, as he sees these disciples in verse 2 of chapter 19, he says this, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Did you receive the Holy Spirit? Now, that is actually quite a strange and oddly confronting question for much of contemporary Christianity. Certainly not just traditional streams, but I'd say the mainstream evangelical movement across not only here but other parts of the world, many believers have been taught that by and large the way that you know that you've received the Holy Spirit is that you're a believer. The two are together. If you believe, you have the Holy Spirit. Now, let's be clear here. There is no doubt that if you believe, the Holy Spirit is involved. Scriptures make it clear that it's the Holy Spirit that convicts us of sin, that it's the Holy Spirit that draws us to Him. It's the Holy Spirit that regenerates us, that causes us to, to be born of Him. Ephesians 1.13, it's the Holy Spirit that, that seals us. It says we're sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. So there's no doubt that the Holy Spirit is involved in us believing in the first place. And so you follow the logic of this particular perspective and you can know with this line of thinking, with this interpretation of a passage like this, you can know that you have the Holy Spirit because all who believe have received the Holy Spirit. It's simply a logical inference. We can infer logically that we have it because we believe. So in other words, if you want to know if someone's received the Holy Spirit, we'd say, well, you'd say, well, have you believed on Jesus? If the answer is yes, then we know that the person has received the Holy Spirit. The point is this. To know the Holy Spirit under a lot of the mainstream teaching we hear in this particular area, the, the receiving of the Holy Spirit is simply a logical deduction. There's no kind of specific experience. There's no kind of evidence that can be pointed to. So if you take that view to this particular passage, then you'd have to suggest that what is really going on here as Paul asks his question is he's revealing that these people were never saved in the first place. This is a salvation experience. It's a moment. They weren't really saved, so he gets them saved, and as they're saved, the Holy Spirit comes upon them. Now, I would say there are many good brothers that I know personally who would hold this particular view. There's many convincing arguments and that's fine. I understand exactly where that's coming from. But I want to give us an alternate interpretation, something that I think is really important for us to think through. And this is where we're heading this morning. See, there is one specific reality that, that always resonates in my heart as I read this passage, and I hear Paul's question, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? See, he doesn't say in there, if you believed. He doesn't say, did you... Did you did you receive the Holy Spirit if you believed? He said, when you believed. So if he assumed that they believed, which he clearly does, he said, when you believed, I, I think you have believed, did you receive the Holy Spirit? And if he held the perspective that we've just discussed, of much of mainstream evangelicalism, why didn't he just assume that they'd received the Holy Spirit? In other words, if Paul knew every believer receives the Holy Spirit when they get born again, he never would have asked the question. Have you received the Holy Spirit? Because he would have known that if they believed, they had already received it. Here is 
the point. It seems clear to me that there's room in Paul's theology for people who had believed, because that's what he says, you've believed, but have you received the Holy Spirit? Otherwise, why would he ask? Now, I would personally suggest that there's not just room in his theology, but there's an urgent priority in his theology as he comes and travels, as Luke identifies here, as he says to the Corinthians, here's what I'm coming with to make sure you hear the gospel, to make sure that is something that you are crystal clear on, and to make sure the power of the Holy Spirit is at work and evident in your life. Now, we could go to other passages in Acts, Acts chapter 8, 14. There's another fascinating account there of the Samaritans who believe, and it says specifically they believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, and yet they hadn't received the Holy Spirit. And so the apostles from Jerusalem are sent down, they baptize them again, very similar account, and they receive the Holy Spirit. Even Calvin, whose uh, um, number of his uh, theological books I have, his... Uh, he, he himself notes, as a bit of a, a closet Calvinist that I am, I don't say that too loudly, but there is a distinct second experience, is, he, is his terminology around what he sees in Acts chapter 8, 14. Now, we could go other places, but we won't. Rather than wading into deep, whether this is a baptism, whether it's an infilling or a refilling or some combination of the three, here is where I want us to land this morning. Here is what I believe is so important for us to grasp. As we read this passage and this account, we see this focus of Paul as he's proclaiming the gospel, as he's meeting the disciples. Number one, that there's something for him that is so important. It's so important that it's the first question. Have you received the Holy Spirit? And then the second aspect of that, which is equally as important as he asks this question is, is there the evidence of you having received? Is there some sort of identifiable experience of the living God? See, he's not asking, is there just some theological understanding? Is there just a logical inference from a human act of will? Is there the evidence of the Holy Spirit in your life? And indeed, this is what we see all the way through the book of Acts, these explicit descriptions of what receiving the Holy Spirit is all about. Luke accounts the Holy Spirit being given as a gift in chapter 8, 15, etc. The Holy Spirit falling on people, chapter 8, 10, 11. The Holy Spirit coming upon people, chapters 1 and 19. The Holy Spirit being poured out on people, chapter 2 and 10. People receiving the Holy Spirit, chapters 2, 8 and 10. Being baptized with the Spirit, chapter 1 and 11. Being filled with the Holy Spirit. And many, many other passages in each one of these instances of receiving, of being filled with the Spirit, there is a reality of an experiential aspect of what that means. There's speaking of tongues, there's praising the mighty works of God, there's prophesying, there's boldness, there's miracles. We're going to see later in the chapter there's extraordinary miracles. There's the power to witness and fulfill the Great Commission. See, what I believe this passage says, and if we were to have Paul ask us the same question. What he expects us to say as he asks us, have you received the Holy Spirit, is not just have you believed in Jesus. I mean, that, that's his first and foremost priority. That's, that's upmost in his message. But I don't think he's asking that question. Have you believed in Jesus? He's saying, have you received the Holy Spirit? In other words, is there some sort of evidential reality? What he'd want us to answer is yes. Yet the, the power of the Holy Spirit is evident in my life. 
and the way I love God and the way I serve my family and the way I fulfill the mission that He's given me, the way I boldly proclaim the glorious grace that has rescued and redeemed me. Yes, there is, not just because it's a theological inference from my faith in Christ, because, but because it's an experiential, evidential, undeniable reality with effects that we can definitely point towards. Now, let me encourage us. If our, advance, if our answer to that question is no, then I believe Paul would say, well, it's really simple. All you need to do is receive him. How do we receive him? Let's move then from the theological to the practical. And I want to encourage our hearts in this. Remembering, if nothing else, it's the same Paul who talks in Ephesians 1, Ephesians 1 about the work of the Holy Spirit sealing us, that talks in Ephesians 5 verse 18 about being continually filled. So if there's nothing else, there's this urgent priority of Paul of it's not supposed to be just a one-off encounter. It's not something that's supposed to be just 2,000 years ago or there was this moment in my life 20 years ago. He says, be continually filled. In fact, it's such an interesting passage, Ephesians 5.18. It seems almost a little irreverent because he says and phrases it this way. He says, do not be drunk with wine. Do not be overcome by wine. Do not be given to too much wine, but be continually and constantly filled with the Holy Spirit. A little, little, almost an irreverent picture. Don't do this, but do this. But I think it's an important picture because if you look at someone, it's not just talking about not getting drunk, it's talking about someone who's consumed by that, whose very thought, every waking moment is heading towards that. They wake up and they just look for the, where, where can I get my next drink? It's something that consumes their life. And Paul's using that as a picture of the Holy Spirit, not just as something that seals us, but something where there's a, an evidential reality, something where there's a, a longing and a desiring as we wake in the morning, Lord, we, we need your presence today. I need you to lead me. I cannot wait for you as as uh, David cried out in the Psalms, in a dry and weary land, I'm thirsting and I'm longing for you. I cannot get through the day without us. If you want to look at it this way, it's not so much about Him residing in us, but it's about His Holy Spirit ruling over us. It's about surrendering all that we have to Him. Have you received the Holy Spirit? Spirit. Have you received? And I want to ask us that question. We're going to bring this to a close right now. And I want to tell a particular story as we do. But um, I've been, uh, over the past couple of months, thankful for a few different things. One of those is an opportunity to get outside and get stuck into some gardening and things that last year and the craziness and the busyness of everything going on just got put off to the side. On the back burner, it was uh, left, left by the wayside. But in the midst of this season, there's been that capacity to, to get out and get a few jobs and chores done. And obviously, uh, it's been a winter and even a spring where there's been a lot of rain. So the ground is wet, it's moist. And in fact, we've had, uh, for the first time in the, uh, the five or six years we've been out on our property, we've had an issue with wild pigs. Wasn't sure exactly where they were coming from uh, or what was going on in the paddocks until a couple of nights with the the, the I was going to say the shotgun, the spotlight, 
um, I went down and, and spied this group of wild pigs, actually, absolutely having a field day down in the bottom of my paddock. And I've since patched the fence and stopped them coming in, but there's a paddock that's amazing the damage a group of wild pigs can do. So it's not just wet and muddy, but the ground's all been ripped up. It's just this quagmire of mess. And so I went this past week to try and see if I could bring some order in the midst of the mess and drove down. It took about less than five minutes and I was well and truly bogged and stuck in the midst of this you know, pig quagmire infested paddock. I had to go and uh, borrow my wife's car and tow out my car from the mess and that was okay and thought I'd leave it a few days, which I did, but I uh, probably should have left it a few more because I went down later in the week with uh, the ride on lawnmower thinking, well, this, this will be better. I can you know, hopefully trim a bit of the grass, get a bit of look at what I need to do to fix up this paddock. Lo and behold, didn't take very, very long again and the, uh, the, um, the ride on mower was stuck, so I grabbed my car to to tie out, to tow out the mower and within five minutes I had both the mower and the other car stuck and so again I I called my wife, I said sweetheart can you come down with your car, can you bring your car to tow out my car so that we can try and tow out the mower and in fact it was that muddy, I I was concerned that we were going to get her car stuck as well in the midst of this daisy chain of towing cars out and wondering uh, who I was going to call in the neighborhood and how I was going to explain to them that I'd managed to get every moving vehicle I own stuck in this one pile of mud in my backyard. But fortunately, we did get out. We towed the car out, we towed the mower out, and I'm avoiding that patch at least for a few more days before I venture back and try and uh, bring some order in the midst of the chaos there. But as I was sitting there, stuck in mud for the third time in a week, Never before in five years have I managed to get myself that stuck. Kind of had the Lord just speaking to me in the midst of a season that can feel a little bit like that. Like we're stuck in the middle of just a pig mud patch, struggling to get any sort of traction. And as I was there in the car, and you learn very quickly when you're trying to get out of that sort of quagmire and and mud, that the harder you try, the worse you get stuck. So frustrating. You, you know, you can have all of the signs, you can have all of the you know, symbols of life, the roaring engine, the spinning wheels, the aggressive driver. But the harder you try, the more stuck in the mud you're going to get. And I just had that encouragement from the Lord saying, now this is a season where he's really revealing to me and to his people that as his word says, it's not by might and it's not by power, but it's by his spirit says the Lord. It's not about the externalities. It's not about all the things that we have right. So often it's about the one thing that we need more than anything else. It's about hearing that question from Scripture, from the Apostle Paul. As he both says, have you believed in the gospel? And we've preached that and proclaimed it so much this year. And the question for this morning is, have you received the Holy Spirit. Not just have you believed, but is there that evidential reality? Is there that tangible, experiential power of God that you can answer with all confidence and say, yes, there it is. Here it is. And hopefully for some of us, there is. And my encouragement is, well, Paul says, keep on being filled. There's even more. There's more for us to be filled in His presence. Maybe for some of us, we say, well, if it, there's not, I, that, that's me. I'm just in the car and I'm just trying 
with all my might to get out of it. My invitation this morning is, would you receive afresh that gift, that power, that promise of His Holy Spirit? Maybe some of us were like, well, I've not even really heard of it. Maybe we've heard in part about it. Maybe it's kind of that thing that, that happened 20 years ago when I got saved or I had, I had a bit of a moment and there was some kind of an encounter. My encouragement to us is, would you receive afresh? As Paul, I believe, if he was here, he'd say, this is the urgency. Have you received today? Not just 20 years ago, not just 2,000. Have you received today afresh that reality of his power and presence in our lives? So I'm going to pray. And that's the question, that's the invitation this morning. Are you willing? Are you wanting? Are you ready to receive that reality of His power and His presence afresh? So Father, I want to, I want to thank You for this invitation. I want to thank You for this question that, that challenges me, that I believe we see so often as the Apostle Paul traveled and he proclaimed Your gospel, this urgency. So he came to the Corinthian church, he said, I've known nothing. I've just preached Jesus. I want you to believe in Him. And then with equal urgency, and he said, and, and I've, I've made sure that there was nothing fancy about it so that your faith would rest on his power alone. Lord, would we be a people today who are willing and who are ready to receive afresh, who recognize our need of your power and your presence in our lives. And I want to pray that this would be a season for those who are in that place of just feeling stuck in the mud of, oh, I'm trying so hard and I can't get out. Lord, I pray for that Holy Spirit that just comes and, and pulls us out and into your purposes. Lord, for those in the midst of this season who just perhaps have, have forgotten what not being stuck in the mud is. We're so stuck in the mud, we've just decided if you can't beat Him, we'll join them. We're slinging mud around. And Lord, would you help us get our eyes back upon you? Would your Spirit come? And would there be again a propulsion and a movement, an infilling of your presence that is tangible, it's experiential, and that empowers us to fulfill your call? Lord, would we ponder that question even this week? What does that look like? For, have, have we really received? Is, is that something truly, as Paul says in Ephesians, it's, it's taken over our lives? And would we be a people, not just once on a Sunday, not just once a year, but each and every morning as the sun beckons a new day where our hearts cry as David is, Lord, I'm thirsting for you today. I need your presence. Lord, I receive your presence and your infilling power afresh today. Would we become that people who know what it is to walk not by sight, not by power, not by our own creativity, our wisdom and our intellect, but by that undeniable reality of the power of God at work and evident in our lives. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.